Hello, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, in this episode, I will be looking at uh, a handful of Lovecraft's revisions. So I will look at these as the, the dates chronologically more or less um, demand, but I won't be looking at them in, in the same group as I do the regular Lovecraft story. So I'll, I'll just do a series of them at the end and I'll maybe approach them a little bit more casually. Because not all of these are really Lovecraft's works, they all have his hand in them, you know, but it's not clear in every case how much he was a, an editor, a, someone who did reviser, in some cases he was ghostwriting. So, in fact, in a lot of these it seems he's the ghostwriter, and a lot of people, you see this when you find these like on YouTube and look for audiobook versions, a lot of people just put, you know, the Green Medal by H.P. Lovecraft, not acknowledging Winifred Jackson, who is the, the titular author, and you know sometimes that's warranted sometimes it's not so i don't know it's i'm, I'm going to try to I, I don't you know i'm not going to know exactly i don't think we can ever know sometimes it's really mysterious um which stories are are fully his you know i guess lovecraft fans just like that there's more lovecraft out there but i think we have to be honest about um this as best we can now i'm drawing these from uh, a public domain uh, book that you can find online. It's H.P. Lovecraft Complete Fiction Omnibus. It's in three volumes. The first two volumes are his, the works he published under his name. The last volume, the third volume, is Collaborations and Ghostwritings. So that's where we'll be drawing this from. Um, we also get a list of his revisions at the end of the Klinger Anthology. It's one of the appendixes to it. Um, I think it's appendix find it here. Sorry. Um, appendix 6. And that has them alphabetically, the collaborator, co-author, the year written, the year published, all that useful stuff. And I kind of glanced at this. I think this list that Klinger gives is pretty much everything in this book. There might be one or two missing, or there might be some inconsistencies. I'm not sure. But um, we'll keep an eye out for that. We'll, we'll make check marks to make sure we try to get them all. So, uh, you know, I, well, the way I, I was thinking about, I was kind of debating how to, how to do this. If we want to, we've been looking at his stories published, written up to 1924. So that means uh, I should look at the revisions now up through 24. And there are f uh, six of them, six of them, um, at least according to this, this um, anthology. Um, two of these he wrote with Winifred um, v. Jackson, who was a, a friend of his, an early, um, you know, someone he wrote a lot of letters to. Um, he's, and he, he did, worked with two stories with her, one called The Green Meadow, uh, and that was in 1919, and one called The Calling Chaos in 1920. And they're actually quite similar tales, even though they, they're different uh, in their, their structure. They're both kind of about a wild dream world where things sort of reality begins to break down. Um, but they're, they're framed in very different ways. The one, the Green Meadows framed as a, as a story we're getting kind of from the cosmos, of a, a, but also from Earth and from Earth's past, but it's in a material that doesn't really fit with the time it's supposed to be from. So it's just really mysterious. And in The Crawling Chaos, it's, it's opium. It's an opium dream. Um, so I'll look at those two today, and then I'll look at the one he... He revised for Ella, Anna Helen Croft. And this one's more mysterious, according to our editors here, who uh, aren't really sure Lovecraft had much to do with this at all. It doesn't really seem like Lovecraft's writer. We don't actually don't even don't know that much about Croft, so there's even some 
question about who this cross woman was. Um, but it doesn't seem to be Jackson who he was working with at the time. So that one we'll look at as well. Then in the next episode, we'll look at the two revisions he did with Sonia Haft Green. Of course, he would eventually marry her. And then we'll do Under the Pyramids, the Harry Houdini. That's fully Lovecraft. Um, so that'll, that'll deserve kind of, it's a long tale, too, so it'll sort of deserve, deserve its own episode. So um, let's jump into this, The Green Meadow. Meadow. So this was written in 1819. It wasn't published until spring of 1927 in The Vagrant, which is another one of those uh, amateur journals. By this point, Lovecraft wasn't really publishing in these amateur journals, but we see here still a connection to these. Um, the story itself was not originally Lovecraft's idea, apparently. It was a dream that Jackson had in 1918. Uh, but, Jack, uh, but Lovecraft seemed to have done much of the actual writing of the, the story. So it's, it's um, kind of interesting because, of course, Lovecraft also kind of narrated his dreams. And this is an example of him narrating someone else's dream. And, of course, the story is very, very dreamlike. We get a really interesting kind of introductory note which frames the story and gives it a lot of questions, maybe too many questions. I think the number of questions we get from this sort of suggests that these are un unanswerable. So the story, the, well, the note, the introductory note is set in 1913. Uh, well, it's set sometime after 1913, actually, it's after 1918. But it's, it's like an academic note on this document, which is the rest of the story. The book, as it's called. Now, what happened is, like, a meteorite hit the Earth, or was found. And the local scientific authorities started to investigate, and they found attached to it, embedded into this, quote, semi-metallic mass, a book, right? And why a book? Now, the writing in the book is, is readable, it's, it's legible, it's in ancient Greek, it's in 2nd century BC Greek. So, but that, you wouldn't expect it in a book, right? It, you'd expect it in a scroll if it was written in the 2nd century BCE, but instead it's written in this book in materials that aren't really human. I really had, uh, was thinking of the Colorado space, we have that same issue where a meteorite comes and scientists try to work on it and figure it out, and that doesn't really make much sense to them because the material doesn't really conform to the rules we expect. We get this extra-worldly material. What is worldly, though, is the writing itself, the text, which is in Greek um, from a particular period, but otherwise they can't date it. Now, they do different experiments on this, and they end up smudging some of the text, so that adds another layer of mystery to it and that we don't actually get the conclusion, which we presume would provide some clue about why, how this got back to earth why it was discovered at the time what's its relationship with the meteorite we don't get an answer to any of that it's all smudged away i guess so it's kind of convenient that way but you know dreams have that character where there's bits we don't remember where it gets fuzzy where it gets confused and and you really can't tell it so you know it, it kind of works as a dream story that way um, now, there's also an interesting kind of scientific debate over the nature of this text uh, where people some people say well this is a meteorite others including one is a German who fled to the United States after World War I, uh, you know, interred in 1918 as a dangerous alien, alien, enemy alien. Well, I don't know. I guess he was from Germany before, but he was interned in, during the war as an alien. But anyways, he didn't quite agree. He thought there was something more extra-worldly about it. Um, another professor says, we just sort of don't know. We can't really classify it. Science really can't speak to this. But we get a nice little scientific debate about the nature of this. But all this doesn't really matter because all this is just to set up the book itself, the story itself. So let's jump into what's there. 
So our, our narrator in this book part is this part called the book. It's actually only a few lines, but apparently some of this book was destroyed, but uh, it's only a thousand words or so. Um, but we get uh, our narrator is on this narrow little passageway between the sea on one side and a forest on the other. And both are kind of presented as endless and eternal, and the sea goes off until it touches the sky, and the forest is described as uh, stretching infinitely inland. So they're both eternal, so he's on this very, very narrow stretch. Um, and the biggest feeling he has while experiencing this, um, this setting, this environment he's in, is loneliness. But he also talks about feeling amnesia, uh, feeling the sense of going mad, and he feels uh, kind of the memories of a past life. And all these are kind of mixed together really, really creatively as, as he's kind of walking through this, this narrow path. And even the narrow path seems to cross over because he talks at one point where trees are actually growing in the waterway. So there's, there's, you know, there's almost like no space for the ego. It's like the superego and the id almost like, you know, the ego is kind of trapped in between without much autonomy and freedom, kind of feeling overwhelmed by both sides. He's sort of in that, that situation here. Um, now, this narrator seems to have some connection to occult, at least for ancient Greek standards, occult knowledge. And he talks about uh, the papyri of Damocritus, who he has kind of known, and this experience he's having. Um, we don't get an explanation of how this experience emerged. It seems to be some sort of dream he's having or some kind of mad experience. But it kind of he sees it tied in some way to these ancient texts and this kind of occult learning he got to in the past. Now, overarching all this is a feeling of quote malignant hatred and, and demoniac triumph. Sometimes they struck me as being in horrible colloquy with ghastly and unthinkable things, which the scaly green bodies of the trees half hid hid from sight but not from consciousness. Um, really great stuff here uh, about just this, this indifference of the universe, the hostility of it, and this idea that there's something beyond uh, the veil, something that's, that's quite horrific. This is a story sort of cosmic horror. Um, the largest feeling, though, and the narrator says this, that he feels is just isolation, alienage, uh, this total loneliness and isolation from any other being. So it's at this point in the story that he sees the green meadow, the titular green meadow, um, in front of him, but it's separated. It's in the water. It's, it's kind of like a, it, it gives him some sort of feeling of, of hope, of security, and that's why his eyes are drawn towards it, and he becomes uh, kind of obsessed with, with watching that. Um, and as he notices this, at the same time, he notices that part of the land he's on breaks away, and he's now he's on kind of a floating island in the waterway, right? And, and the world begins to break down progressively as the story develops, this world that he's in. And it's, he's sort of floating into this water, perhaps towards the green meadow, but that's where his eyes are. And distance is all kind of not really clear here, um, but he is certainly floating away from what, where he was, right? And he kind of go, moves even beyond the senses here. We get a description of, of a scent of his, his acknowledging something there beyond the senses, right? The malice of the forests, the, the horrible sounds he hears. Later on, he hears water kind of that's, almost uh, preternatural. Um, but by and large, you get this feeling of, of something beyond the senses. In fact, it's stated outright here, quote, I became less and less dependent on the five senses that I once had as my sole reliance. 
I knew the scaly green forest hated me, yet now I was safe from it, for my bit of bank had drifted far from the shore. Um, and as this is happening, like, uh, you know, the island itself is breaking up, pieces of earth are breaking up around him, and he's, his, like, focus this whole time is on this green meadow, right? Now, he starts to hear falling water, you know, like a waterfall, but he describes it as so massive that it would be as if the Mediterranean was, was being drained. That, that's how massive the sound would be. Yet, as he looked towards the green meadow, he felt this sense of contentment and security um, being close to his, I guess, destination. I guess the green meadow is sort of a destination, but he doesn't have that freedom because he's floating on this uh, island. So then we get a description, a little bit more of the, the kind of threat he's under. This, this, he's pretty to be an old man. This old man's under this threat from like this darkening sky, this weird mist in the sky, and, but he's all sort of helpless. And all you can do is sort of look at these horrors behind him. Um, and then the good news is he starts to hear chanting from the green meadow. And it's chanting he actually sort of recognizes a little bit, even though he doesn't quite know what they're saying, he recognizes it because he he once translated from an old Egyptian book, an old papyrus book from Egypt, um, which has some ancient knowledge. So it's kind of interesting how this story itself is a kind of a tomb of ancient wisdom of sorts from the Greeks, but he's actually referencing an even older book. We get these kind of layers of knowledge that we've we've seen in other stories, um, and. You know, he doesn't, we don't get any really details about what is, is there in that, that book from the Egyptians, but it, it is mentioned in his reference to it. He references it, and he kind of recognizes the chanting as being tied to that. Right? Um, so this kind of drives him farther and farther towards the, the green meadow. Um, now, while this is happening, the whole landscape, the island, everything around him is breaking up. And he starts to have a realization about the illusion of death and the fact that death is, is just an illusion and there's some place for, there's some kind of afterlife and that he's being a part of it almost. Quote, bits of sod continue to break away from the tiny track which carried me, but I heeded not their loss for I felt I was not to die with the body which seemed to possess, which I seemed to possess, that everything about me, even life and death were illusionary, that I have overleaped the bounds of mortality and corporeal entity becoming a free, detached thing impressed me as almost certain, right? The detachment he's feeling, of course, is paralleling the detachment of the, of the island he's on, which, which is broken away, right? And with this, he begins to, his memory sort of restored to him. The story begins, he, he's sort of forgetting, and, he, and he's not really sure. And over time, he starts to remember different bits and pieces. And here he begins to remember. And at the same time that he hears the voices from the green meadow, even even louder um, and he really has this deep desire this deep desire to to see the chanters to be with them and then we get kind of the realization at the end of the story uh, that he's going to a specific place the place is called Stelothus this is actually something in a dreamland story it's actually referenced in in the quest of Ironon the way it's described here uh, quote, all, all is before me. Beyond the deafening torrent lies the land of Stethelos, where young men are infinitely old. Um, the green meadow, and I'll send a measure across this horrible, unmeasurable abyss. Now, this is the point where the text becomes illegible, so we don't really get the story of how this message that he obviously created and did send to us got there. 
but it's he's kind of he's just someone who's kind of passed into the dreamlands. So this is a, a dreamland story. It is has a tie to the to the dreamlands um, in in some way, um, even though it's he's not the titular author of it. It was technically written by Winifred V. Jackson. It was it was her um, her idea, but uh, Lovecraft wrote most of the works. It seems, and he ties it ties in very very directly to his his other writings. Okay, so um, I guess not too much to say here. This is all pretty typical stuff we've already seen. Um, it, it's a little bit uh, more surreal than a lot of the Dream One stories where we get the sense that the Dream Ones are a real place with its own rules. Here, all we're really experiencing is, is the, the horror. But what I think is happening here, and this is how I sort of interpret this, is you know, when you're maybe first in a dream and you don't really know where you are and everything is, is strange and you're trying to feel your way to it and it's over time that maybe you get more used to where you're at and you start to understand things and remember things a little bit more clearly until everything is made clear to you, right? Um, that's sort of what happens to our narrator here. Certainly it starts out really bizarre and, and surreal and it ends up a little bit more solid in that we get to a place that's actual real and he's, you know, he kind of recalls his memory and all those sorts of things. So the next story, uh, written a year later, also uh, based on an idea by Winifred V. Jackson, uh, written by H.P. Lovecraft. It's a little bit longer. It's a um, very, very similar story. We've got kind of a world breaking down. We have a kind of a dreamland story. But this time, the impetus, we don't really get an explanation of how this Greek guy transitions to the dreamlands, um, nor how he's able to communicate from the dreamlands to Earth. Uh, through this, you know, meteorite or whatever that's all bludged out or smudged out. Here we have a clear explanation of what's going on here, in that it's an it's an opium, it's like a bad trip. Story: The Crawling Chaos, originally published in 1921 in the United Co Cooperative, actually published long before the Green Meadow. So as the story begins, we're, we're told that opium does seem to allow people to have experiences to dreams, ecstasies, and some historical experiences are mentioned to Quincy, Baudelaire. These are actually, Baudelaire is mentioned in another Lovecraft story. I think it's mentioned in, um, uh, which one was it? The Hound, that's right, it was mentioned in The Hound, right? But the, the, the clear suggestion here is that opium is a tool for dreamers. And this, of course, comes up a lot in the Dreamland stories. So already in the first few lines, we're, we're clearly in kind of Lovecraft territory in this use of a drug as a tool of dreaming. Um, and, and anyways, so he just says, like, this happens. And then he says, well, I took opium once and I was overdosed. And doctors gave it to me and I overdosed. And I'm never going to let doctors do that again because of what I experienced. Um, so what happens in the story of the crawling chaos and most of it is this description of this this dream as it's it's revealed to him now this dream seems to be set at some point in the future and we'll see why in a minute um, but uh, anyways his first experience is that of falling falling uh, as he kind of transitions into this opium dream and one of the first kind of sensations he has also is in addition to falling is that of the sea Quote, the falling had ceased also giving place to a sensation of uneasy temporary rest where I listened closely. I fancied the pounding was that of a vast, unscrutable sea as its senator colossal breakers lasted in some desolate shore after a storm of titanic magnitude. Then I opened my eyes. 
So he wakes up in a room, in a small room that turns out to be a room, a house not really much bigger as a cottage, and he just hears this pounding, this pounding uh, that almost is in his brain. It's described as in his brain, but also seems to come from outside of this building that he's in. And he has this intense fear of the unknown. Now, this is really a great effect here because there's a suggestion that it's water, and later on in the story, it's clear that this water is consuming the entire land around him. It's like a flood. It's like the end of end days kind of situation. Um, but we're, you know, he doesn't really know that. He's not really conscious of that in the near timeline of the dream. He just has this feeling of the unknown. Quote, slowly but inexorably crawling upon my consciousness and rising above every other impression came a dizzying fear of the unknown, a fear all the greater because I could not analyze it and seeming to concern a stealthily approaching menace, not death, but some nameless, unheard of thing, inexpressibly more ghastly and abhorrent. Um, but so this is kind of outside the building, but also inside of his, his brain. Um, now he finally kind of takes a look outside the building and he sees this kind of vortex and he sees water and he sees this kind of onslaught of the water, literally attacking the land. Literally the sea here is described as eating away of, we eating the land. Um, quote, out of a mile or more there rose and fell menacing breakers at least 50 feet in height and on the far horizon ghoulish black clouds of grotesque contour were resting and brooding like unwholesome vultures. So the war, there's kind of a war on earth by, by water and you know, this apparently was also based on a dream of, of Jackson, Winifred Jackson, just like the Green Meadow. But this is such a Lovecraftian theme. I mean, it really gets to the heart of some of the things I've been talking about in this podcast about the threat of the sea, the nature of the ocean, right? It's not just that there's weird creatures down there and tentacly things and things you probably shouldn't eat. Um, you know, he had the kind of a thing about seafood, I'm sure. But it was... Uh, you know, that the sea itself is kind of an existential threat to the land, right? And when we look at his views on immigration, his views on, on uh, you know, traditions kind of flowing around the world, uh, I keep thinking of the Many-Headed Hydra book by Peter Langbaugh and Marcus Redeker when I think of Lovecraft, because that's all about kind of the sea being a conduit for radical, subversive ideas and intercultural connections and, and, and things like that. Um, but also power, empire, can also stretch across the seas, especially in the modern era. Um, but, you know, the war on Earth by water is really reflected really well in this story. So anyways, he finally gets up the courage to leave this house because he doesn't think he can really stay there. He wants to escape. And he gets, when he leaves, all he sees is the sea. He sees the, the rumbling sea on both sides of him. But he is able to get to some land and he enters into this sort of tropical landscape. Right. And there's all sort of mixed landscapes here where the trees don't always kind of match the ones next to it. The architecture is a little bit classical Greek, but also Chinese. Uh, Eastern and Western forms mixed together. Uh, that kind of suggests also we're in some kind of future timeline in which architecture and cultures are sort of mixed together uh, in some ways. Um, but anyways, he goes out there and he finally, just like in the Green Meadow, the narrator had this sense, we got to get to the Green Meadow. Here he sees a palm tree in kind of up a hill, and that's where he thinks he has to go. He's back into this palm tree. And he goes there. And while he's up there, or he's on his way there, I'll just read what, what's said here. So, terror, some terror in the swishing tall grass seemed added to that of the diabolically pounding sea. I stared up, crying aloud and disjointedly. Tiger, tiger, is it a tiger? Beast, beast, is it a beast that I'm afraid of? 
My mind wandered back to an ancient and classical story of tigers, which I had read. I stole to recall the author, but I had difficulty. Then in the midst of my fear, I remembered that the tale was by Rudyard Kipling, nor did the grotesqueness of deeming him an ancient author occur to me." End quote. So in the timeline of the story, the narrator is of our time, but he's in some sort of future. He's dreaming or experiencing some kind of future in which Kipling is a long dead ancient writing, writer. So this is far in the future, this is said, and it is sort of the end times. Um, he sort of struggles to get up into to this palm tree, and he finally gets there. And while he's there, he sees a young child, a quote, a young child of such beauty that I never beheld before, kind of like a demigod child um, there. And the child speaks to him and says, it is the end. They have come down through the gloating from the st gloaming from the stars. Now all is over and beyond the Arthurian streams, we shall dwell blissfully in Tilo. Now we got kind of like dreamland locations almost being mentioned here, but these are in the, these are celestial objects, my understanding. Um, and other kids, other like God children, hold his hand and say, come uh, child, you have heard the voices and all is well. In Tilo, beyond the Milky Way, and in Aruian streams are cities of amber and Kalkonidi. And upon their domes of many facets glisten the images of strange and beautiful stars. Under their ivory bridges of Tilo flow rivers of liquid gold, bearing pleasure barges bound for blossomy. And it goes on more about this. But this is very much like the quest of Iron Anakin, right? The description of this place as a, as a place where only beauty and art uh, live forever, right? And he says, only beauty, youth, and pleasure, nor are any sounds heard save of laughter, song, and lute. This is exactly what uh, the narrator in the quest of Aranon was going for, was trying to find, uh, the hero of that story anyways. He was trying to find this land where art is the sole beauty, right? Around this kind of degraded otherness. Yeah, I think this story is sort of like the story about the end of civilization in a way, because what's being preserved here outside of Earth is uh, a place where art can be, be perfected, right? So thematically, it ties very much with the Dreamland stories, even though the, the narr narration itself is not something we've quite seen before in, in Lovecraft's tale, at least up to this point. Um, so he's listening to this kind of, these voices by these young kind of fawn, almost these kind of Hellenic, Hellenic uh, demigod children, and he starts to see himself being floated up into the into the sky, right? And they kind of tell him, "Don't look down," but he does. He looks down, and he sees like he witnesses the ocean consuming all of civilization. Quote, and under the ghastly moon, there gleam sights I can never describe, sights I can never forget. Deserts of corpse-like clay and jungles of ruin and decadence, where once stretched the populous plains and villages of my native land and maelstroms of frothing ocean, where once rose the mighty temples of my forefathers. Around the North Pole steamed amoras of noisome growths and a miasmal vapors hissing before the onslaught of the ever-mounting waves that curled and fretted from the shuddering deep. So essentially, the ocean consumes the land, and with it comes the death of civilization. Even, specifically, London and Paris being uh, destroyed. Is, are there, these two are two cities that are called out by, by name. Right? So I think... This, and then he wakes up, and then he's like, oh, that's how the kind of the vision ended, um, and, and the story comes to an end. Uh, but I think what's kind of thematically powerful about this story is this imagery of a, of a world being 
under constant threat of a sea that just cannot be stopped. It, it's, it's relentless. It's eternal. It's, you can maybe dam it up for a while, but eventually it will break through. And with it will wash away all that is good and solid in, in the world. Civilization in, in Lovecraft's thinking to some degree. Um, but the, the overarching threat of the sea, I think, is really the heart of this, of this story. Um, now, the crawling chaos, he uses this term, the crawling chaos, in the short, in Nyarlathotep, that story that I still can't pronounce very well. Uh, and he associates that god with the crawling chaos. And I think he does that again. He does it a lot in uh, Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadad, where, where that god has its, his most prominent um, position in any of his stories. Now, maybe it's in the, you can kind of read into it that it's there in this, this story. Something is destroying the earth here, and the little kids identify it as a they. Something is doing the destruction, not just the natural processes of, of nature. Um, but, but, yeah, this seems to be, I mean, it, it seems to exist separate from that, though, as well. So, anyways, this is a story about the death of civilization. Um, Really, really kind of, I think, important thematically to understanding Lovecraft. Now, the third little uh, story I want to look at today is Poetry and the Gods, which was written in 1920, um, published in 1920 in United Amateur. It's by a woman named Anna Helen Crofts, a woman we don't know that much about. Apparently, some of her works appeared in, in other weird fiction journals at the time. Uh, it's not quite clear how Lovecraft knew her. He didn't seem to write letters to her. Now, our, my editors of this compendium of, of Lovecraft stories says that this one is maybe of dubious influence by Lovecraft. Uh, saying, well, first it has a female protagonist, which Lovecraft really does. Uh, S.T. Joshi is, uh, is quoted here saying, um, it's a simply a curiosity. It'll be of interest only if more information on his writing and collaborator emerges. Um, so we really can't say too much about Lovecraft here. I don't want to push it too much. Uh, our editors seem to think that it's so different from the Green Meadow and the Crawling Chaos that it seems to be more this woman Croft's work, right? Maybe Lovecraft was more of an, an editor to it. The first two, though, clearly mostly Lovecraft's voice, if not the story itself. Maybe those were really Jackson's dreams. The story itself was written by Lovecraft. Written by Lovecraft. Maybe not so much in Poetry of the Gods, but it's worth taking a little look at. I do think it's really a wild story, and I, I rather like it. Um, so our, our hero of the story is a woman named Marsha, and she's in the modern era, sometime after the First World War, and she's out of time. This does make us think of Lovecraft, actually. Lovecraft have this kind of fascination for this time of art and poetry and, and he saw the modern world as sort of a degraded uh, betrayal of that this this uh, story does just reflect that aspect of it and I don't know if this is coming from Lovecraft you know it's really hard to dissect you know who did what in these you know unless you're really an expert on the prose itself uh, I'm kind of building up the editors here saying that this is mostly Croft's work but there are certainly stuff that I think Lovecraft would have dug about this story, especially that, this, this kind of the banality of modern civilization, right? Uh, listen to this. Uh, Attired simply in a low-cut black evening dress, she appeared outwardly a typical product of modern civilization, but tonight she felt the immeasurable gulf that separated her souls from all her prosaic surroundings. 
Was it because of the strange house in which he lived, that abode of coldness where relations were always strained and the inmates scarcely more than strangers? Um, great. I mean, that's really, I think, how maybe many people feel, right? But her alienation goes even to her interpersonal connection. She can't even feel home in her home because everything is like, she just feels so out of place or out of time. So what does she do? Well, she turns to poetry, and that's how she tries to find her bearing. And so she starts flipping through like a poetry magazine and finding something to read, something that will comfort her, something that will find her a, kind of a home in this modern civilization. And she finally comes across a story, uh, or a poem, I mean, that is described this way. Quote, devoid of regularity, it had yet the harmony of winged, spontaneous words, a harmony missing from the formal convention-bound verse she had known. So it's kind of a free verse sort of poem. But she says this sort of reminded her of the time uh, or of or kind of brings her into a dream, uh, a, a dream where only gods and dreamers walk. Right. And so a big theme in this story is essentially that poetry is the language of the gods. Um, now, where we get kind of a Lovecraft motif here, a really a strong one, is that the gods are sleeping and will wake again. Another, it's not Cthulhu in this case, it's just the Greek gods, but the fact that they're out there waiting, they're inspiring people through art, through dreams, through poetry, but at some point they will return and, and awaken. I mean, that's really kind of a, something we've, we see before. Maybe, maybe Lovecraft stole it from Prof. Maybe he kind of lifted this idea from this story even. I don't know. Um, but we get the poem, and we get the poem cited, and it's an original poem. Uh, and it's got three stanzas, moon over Japan, moon over the tropics, and moon over China. And those are the three different stanzas, the first line of the three different stanzas. Which is interesting because we have Asia here. Now this is supposed to be a poem that tells her there's a new age coming. That's what her conclusion of reading this poem is that there'll be some kind of, this is awakening a new era. Now the poem itself isn't that spectacular, but what's striking is it's, it's set in the non-Western world, right? That this awakening, this new age is not necessarily going to come from the West, which maybe is beyond hope, but instead Asia is highlighted here. Um, but anyways, she thinks that this is going to bring a new era of song and literally the rebirth of Pan, the awakening of, well, literally this says here the rebirth of Pan, but other gods are told about here as awakening. But she thinks a new day is going to come. She goes to sleep, though, and she's while she's sleeping, she's sort of encounter she encounters Hermes Hermes the messenger of the gods comes to her and he comes adoring it's described that he adores her as he speaks then adoring Hermes spoke adoring her for having I guess discovered this truth that he's been filtering the gods have been filtering to people through poems and he basically says you're right we're into a new age an age uh, where the gods will come back the secrets of the gods revealed in beauty and song will come back um, and Pan will be awakened uh, as well. It just as she sort of predicted and already thought in her, her reflections of it, on it. And so then we get a long description of the sleeping gods, how the gods of Greece have slept, how they continue to communicate, but they've been largely quiet. The Titans have slept and how mankind is worthy of punishment for having ignored the gods for as long as they, they had. But uh, like the Christian God, punishment will not come necessarily on the people, but rather on the darkness that had to kind of direct, move people away from their, their true relationship with the gods. 
And Hermes' little speech ends with, This night shalt thou know the favor of the gods, and behold on Parnassus those dreams which the gods have through, sent through ages sent to earth to show that they are not dead. For poets are the dreamers, dreams of God, and in each and in every age someone hath sung unknowingly the message and promise of the lotus gardens beyond sunset. So then Hermes takes her, uh, takes, takes uh, Marcia to to Jupiter, to Zeus, to Parnassus, to the court of Olympus. And there she is told, essentially, that all these, all these poems, she actually sees the images carved, these six noble figures carved in, the, in this cave up you know, on Parnassus. Uh, the faces of uh, like Dante, Shakespeare, Milton, and Goethe, and Keats, these are like the poets who were the voice of God on, on earth. And then we hear from, um, from Zeus himself, from the Thunderer. And what Zeus tells Marcia is that, it's kind of a, it, it kind of goes on a little bit, this is his speech he gives, him, gives her. But he basically says, what, repeats some of the stuff Hermes already said, but adds that a new messenger is coming. Quote, he is the one we have chosen to bled into one glorious whole, all the beauty that the world hath known before, and to write words within shall echo all the wisdom and the loveliness of the past. He it is who shall proclaim our return and sing of the days to come when Faunus and Dryads still haunt their custom groves in beauty. Um, so he's going to be kind of a hybrid figure. He's going to have, you know, ideas or lines of poetry given to him from these other, you know, voices of poets who now exist in Parnassus. Right, so first to stand up is, is Homer. So, and he gives like some lines of, of verse. It's in Greek though, and she doesn't really know Greek, but she seems to, 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 to dig it. Um, then we get Dante, Goethe, and, and they also speak, but we also don't get what they say. I guess because they're all writing in different languages. Dante, I guess in Italian, Goethe in German, and maybe she didn't know enough German, so she didn't um, uh, really have, she didn't include them, unfortunately. But the last three poets in this pantheon, it's kind of cool. We got a pantheon of poets and we got the pantheon of gods juxtaposed a little bit here. And, and they, they, their bust actually exists in Parnassus along with the gods. So we got uh, Shakespeare first and we get a little line of verse from Shakespeare. Then Milton and we get a line of verse from Milton and then Keats and we get a line of verse from, from Keats. And so after getting this sort of message, she is sent back to Earth um, with this message from, from Hermes and Zeus. And as the story ends, it's many years later. Marcia has kind of moved on with her life after this dream of, of being on Parnassus with the gods. And she's with the poet. She's actually with this poet who's brought been brought to Earth in some way. Um, Gone is the old spirit of an unrest, for beside her is one whose name is luminous with celebrity, the young poet of poets, at whose feet sits all the world. He is reading from a manuscript words which none had ever heard before, but which when heard will bring to men the dreams and fancies they lost so many years ago when Pan lay down to doze in Ar Arcady, and the great gods withdrew to sleep their lotus sleep beyond the lands of the Hesperides. Um, yeah, that's the... That's how the story essentially ends. So, yeah, apparently this is not so much the words of Lovecraft himself, but there's really some Lovecraftian like themes going on here, especially the alienation uh, from the modern world and modern civilization, the association of kind of the idyllic world with poetry, 
and the idea of rising sleeping gods, right? Um, but usually for Lovecraft, that's like a horrendous thing, the waking of sleeping gods. Here it's uh, presented as a beautiful moment in which kind of the new age will finally emerge. So anyways, that's uh, some of my thoughts on just three of these early revisions by, by Lovecraft um, and others. Uh, the next two I'm going to look at are The Horror at Martin's Beach and Four O'Clock. I'll do an episode on that. Those were both uh, written by Sonia Half-Green with some minor revisions by, by Lovecraft. So those are not really his tales so much, not certainly compared to The Green Meadow and The Crawling Chaos. But uh, his fingers were in there somewhat. Um, and of course, it's worth talk, talking about her. He, you know, Lovecraft did marry her, so let's, uh, let's uh, have an episode dedicated to her. So um, if you, what do you think of these three stories? Uh, have you, you know, let me know. Send me a tweet or send me a, a, an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or leave a comment below or leave a review or whatever. Um, I will be very glad to hear from you what you have to say about these three particular um, short stories, these three revisions um, written in part by Lovecraft. Um, yeah, that'll be it. I'll see you next time. We'll talk about Sonia Hart Green. See you then. Thanks for listening.